This morning we're going to be in John 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back, and there should be a bookmark to get you near John, if not John. And while you're turning there and getting set, I'd just like to thank everybody who stuck around for caroling last week. We had a nice group of people go out. We got to sing some sing some carols, pass out some invites, pass out some hot cider. It was a really good time, really fun. It's always a good uh, and uh, fun time when we get to go do that. So thank you for everybody who stuck around for that. And for everybody yesterday that came out for the Christmas party, um, especially everybody that helped set up and helped tear down and clean up. It was a great time. Good morning. Uh, we were all had a lot of sugar. It was a lot of fun. Um, and we had some sweet white elephant gifts passed around too. Daniel Rico won the white elephant. He had the best gift of white elephant. It was uh, it was the best one. So um, thank you for everybody that's been sticking around and, and helping make this holiday season a whole lot of fun. So um, like I said, this morning we're going to be in John 1. So we started a series last week titled Behold. And this is a word that oftentimes gets looked past. It's, a, it's kind of an old word. We don't really use it much in uh, our own conversation, so it's one of those words we kind of skip by. I called it last week a demonstrative imperative. It's a jarring word. It's a word that's intended to slow you down. It is a word that's intended to help you focus on what is happening. It's, it's an interruption. It's stop and pay attention to what's being said, to what is happening here. And that's something for us as we are in the midst of the Christmas season and that we all need to behold to stop and pay attention that God is at work in and through us. Even in the season that we are in, God is on the move. God is working. And so I encourage you, stop, slow down in the midst of all of the parties and buying and wrapping and all of the things we have to do. Slow down because God is doing something. God is at work in our midst. And so last week was Behold the Promise. And we looked at the message the angel gave to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 1. And while everything made logical sense for Joseph to walk away and give up on the relationship with Mary, behold, God stepped in and made sure his plans were carried out. God's plans cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped, which means that when we step into and are called into those divine appointments by God to shine brightly as his lights, we have no need to fear that we're going to mess it up. No need to fear that we're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing because it is God's plan and he is in control of all things at all times. The message that the angel gave to Joseph was a reminder that God keeps his promises, all of them. It may not happen when or how we think it should, but God is always faithful. And because he was faithful with the biggest, most important promise the promise to send one who would defeat Satan and, sa and save us from our sins, that means we can trust God to be faithful with every other promise that the Bible gives us. Every other promise he has made, he will be faithful to keep that promise because he is faithful and he proved that by sending Jesus to die for us on the cross for our sins in our place. And that idea of Jesus dying, specifically Jesus' Humanity is what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning is Behold the Person. I want us to talk about Jesus, his humanity, and his mission to save the world from their sins. So I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into John 1. So please bow your heads and pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of the gathering place, a place where we can 
to be and worship and spend time together and celebrate you and engage with one another and engage with you. God, we come to you this morning looking, searching for hope and for grace and for rest, looking for stability. The Psalms say that you will set our feet on a rock, that you will make our steps secure. It's a promise you have made, and you already said, God, you keep your promises. Lord, we delight in you and in your will. You do not restrain your mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness from us. You are our help and deliverer. And so regardless of what kind of season, what kind of morning, what kind of place we are in, God, we come here this morning looking to hear from you, looking to engage with you. So God, help us to do just that as we open your word, as we study your word. Help us to push aside the to-do lists and the worries and things that can distract. And let us just be with you because that's what we want. That's what our hearts long for is to be with you. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in John 1, uh, starting in verse 19. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the, this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold the person. Jesus was fully and completely 100% God and at the same time, fully and completely, 100% man. The thing, those things do not, are not in conflict with one another. They, are not, they do not combat one another, nor was he more of one than the other. God was with us in the flesh, Emmanuel. God lived and lived fully here as a human on earth. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus showed up as a human, and it's important that Jesus was a human being, fully and completely man, because without it he could not go to the cross and do what he did. Jesus' humanity cannot be ignored, should not be ignored or brushed past or pushed aside. It's a mystery. It's overwhelming. And let's be honest, it kind of makes our brains hurt. Right? If, if people have been wrestling with Jesus' complete divinity and humanity and how those two things work together for generations, if it's something that boggles your mind, if it's something that like I, I don't quite understand it, for one, I'm right there with you. And for two, we are in good company because there are centuries of scholars and pastors and theologians who are in the same place. But just because it can be hard to fully comprehend doesn't mean we ignore it, doesn't mean it doesn't matter. No, we got to embrace it. A couple of quotes from some, from some people who, as they talk about this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man, Athanasius of Alexandria said, He became what we are that, we, that he might make us what he is. Martin Luther said, you should point to the whole man, Jesus, and say, that is God. J.I. Packer said, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. I think for most of us, it might be easier to think of Jesus as fully God than to consider what it means that he was fully man. Because it means he had to learn things. The God of existence had to be taught how to strap on his sandals. It means he lived a regular real life. He ate, he drank, he laughed, he cried, he got tired, he partied, he mourned. He was a person. In every way, a person is a person. And while we can't say he was more of one than the other at any point, we can say that thanks to the Gospels, we have moments and glimpses where his humanity is quite clear for us to see. And for some, that makes us kind of uncomfortable. What always strikes me about the idea of Jesus' humanity, and especially this time as we celebrate, as we're in Advent, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, is, is the very fact that Jesus came to earth as a baby. He could have done this any way he wanted. He could have just shown up fully an adult man, right? It would not be out of the realm of possibilities that God just appeared. But he chose to come as a baby. The frailty and helplessness of a newborn baby. Man, for us, if you're part of CF, this is your home church. The idea of newborn babies and the frailness and the helplessness. If ever there was a year where we understand newborn babies in this church, we get it this year. We're surrounded by them. The God of all existence came as a baby. The God of all existence who speaks and creates life and holds all things in his hand also had to learn how to walk and talk. Someone had to teach him how to eat and drink. Luke tells us in Luke 2, 52, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Meaning Jesus grew up and had to learn things. This time of year, again, we always talk about Jesus as a baby in the manger. 
But have you really thought about Jesus as a baby? Have you ever taken it beyond that night in the manger or the fact that Jesus was a toddler? He increased in wisdom and stature and favor means he learned things. He wasn't always the smartest person in every room. He had to learn and develop just like any other kid, just like every other person. And in that time, in that culture, you did what your dad did, who did what his dad did. You learned the trade. You learned to do what your dad does. So there's a very good chance Jesus was trained to work with his hands like his dad. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Jesus probably worked with his hands. Which means there is a very real possibility that the Son of God accidentally cracked his thumb with a hammer one day. That he was working on a table or on a chair and he cut himself on a piece of unsanded wood. He was a human being. And that matters. It matters because it means he understands us. He knows you. Not only did he create you, but he can empathize and sympathize with you. He doesn't just acknowledge that things are hard and broken in this earth and tell us, well, just do better, keep trying. But he knows firsthand because he went through it himself. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to God in confidence in the midst of our struggles and failures and know there is mercy and grace to be had in and through Jesus. And with that grace and mercy comes a comfort and a care. It's a care and a comfort from someone who knows how it feels, who understands what it's like to be tempted to go through and deal with the results of the sin of this world. He knows the temptation towards sin, the temptation towards self-gratification and self-exaltation. Remember in the beginning of his ministry, he went face to face with Satan, was tempted with power and authority, and he rebuked the devil over and over again. But honestly, I don't think that's the only time that something like that happened. I think there was a spiritual bounty known throughout the ranks of demons on Jesus' head. He understands you. And it matters that he was a person because we needed him to be so that he could take on the responsibility for our sin on himself so that he could live and do what he came to do, be our sacrifice. In the passage I read this morning in John, in John 1, we were introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was on a mission to set the table, to pave the way, to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus in his ministry. John made it clear he wasn't the Christ. He made it clear he wasn't the guy, that he was preparing the way. He told people, get ready, because one is coming whose sandals, John said, wasn't, he wasn't worthy to untie. And then one day, Jesus shows up. And John, when he sees him, he says in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This statement by John is John doing what he was known for doing. He is a callback to the Old Testament prophets to help people connect the dots from what was to what was to what is, from the law and the prophets to what Jesus had come to do, what was standing before them in their midst. And he does that by saying, stop, see, pay attention, because the Lamb of God is here. That image and reference to a lamb 
would make those who heard him think about the past of the Israelites and their present way of worship and sacrifice. In Exodus 12, during, while the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, Jesus, or God sends a man and sends him to go to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. I want you to go, Moses, and lead my people out of slavery. It's time for them to get out. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. Pharaoh says no, and so we get the ten plagues. Over and over again, God shows his power and authority. And Pharaoh would say, okay, fine, you can leave, and then he would change his mind. And over and over again, plague after plague is sent to show God's power and authority. Until we get to the tenth plague. The plague of the death of the firstborn of every house. That was what was coming. God gave a way to the Israelites to avoid experiencing this. He says, take a lamb and kill it. And he gives them instructions on what to do with this lamb. And he says in Exodus 12, 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And then verse 13 says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God told them, kill a lamb, take the blood of this lamb, cover the doorposts, and when God saw the blood, no death would come to that household. Didn't matter who was in the house. Didn't matter how important they were, or how nice they were, how respected they were, how kind they were. What mattered was they were trusting in the blood that was on the door. The spotless lamb's blood spilt to avoid death in the household. And it's finally after this tenth and final plague, the Israelites were allowed to leave Egypt and go be free. They are freed from slavery. They are once again a people. And as God established them as a people, he gives them instructions in order to how, how they are to live, how they are to worship, how they are to be set apart as God's people. And part of that worship included sacrifice and the sacrificial system. Many different kinds of sacrifice were made, one of them being the sin sacrifice, the sin offering. Leviticus 4.32 says, If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offerings. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat shall be removed as the fat of the lamb is, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. This was the standard practice for a sin offering. This was a regular part of worship. But there was also a special feast day, a celebration day, the day of atonement when all of the sins for all of the people were to be sacrificed and addressed on that day. Leviticus 16 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. This was their weekly, regular worship. We come in and the toughest part of our gig is like, maybe we're out of coffee. 
they came in and there's blood and guts everywhere. It was gross. It was messy. But it was tangible. And it was memorable. And it was intentional. The sacrifice of lambs, perfect, spotless, without blemish lambs, has always been tied to sin sacrifice in the people's mind. They knew if there was sin, there had to be blood. But there were problems with this system for them. One is they had to keep doing it. Because they kept on sinning, because people are people, and we have within us a sin nature. So how many thousands upon thousands of lambs were killed? How many gallons upon gallons of blood were spilt? They had to keep doing it because they kept on sinning, because again, we are human with a flawed humans with a sin nature. But the other, more bigger problem is the reality that the blood of animals can't save you. Again, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's a reason they had to keep doing it, to keep it fresh in their mind, to be this reminder. It wasn't meant to take away sins, but instead it was a reminder and something to hold them to looking forward. For so long, the Israelites were led and driven by the law and the sacrificial system that went with it. When you sinned, when you broke the law, when you did things contrary to the character and will of God, you had to go make a sacrifice over and over again. But this was never meant to be a forever thing. It was a pointer. It was a sign. It was a symbol pointing them to something greater, to someone better, a better, more perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that once it is made, no others would be needed. It would be the final and ultimate one because it would actually and truly cleanse us from our sins and pay the debt we owe due to our sin. That sacrifice was made by Jesus at the cross when he died. He cries out, it is finished. It's done. The sacrifice was made. The wrath of God was poured out on his own son. He died for us in our place. The final, perfect, complete sacrifice. With the longing, with that desire to see someone better, something better. It was the thing that kept stirring the hearts of the Israelites, kept them looking forward. So that we see what John saw on that day when Jesus stood and he sees Jesus and in Jesus he sees the Lamb of God. What John saw on that day in the desert, behold, the Lamb of God. See the Lamb of God. Stop and pay attention because the Lamb of God is here. The sacrifice, not a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is here. The one who will take away the sins of the world. The one who will save us from our sins as the angel had told Joseph about the son that Mary was carrying. John is echoing the same thing that the angel told Joseph. Jesus is for us our sin sacrifice. He is the one who takes on our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Christ came to do. That's the mission of the incarnation. The mission of what we are celebrating right now. The point of this humble birth, this humble life, all of that is to get Jesus to the cross, to make a way where there was no way, to be for us the sin substitute, the sin sacrifice, that, that, which is what he ended up doing. 
who grew up living a normal life, from a boy who had to learn how to walk and talk and eat and drink, to a young man who learned from his dad how to work with his hands. This miracle-working prophet hanging out with fishermen and tax collectors, spending his time with sinners and the ones society has rejected, doing things and saying things that made anybody with any kind of authority mad about something or everything. Eventually, he allows himself to be betrayed. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be beaten and abused. Those things couldn't happen if Jesus wasn't fully human. If the incarnation didn't happen, if he doesn't come in fully human form, we are still on the hook for our sins. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to go flip over and go to John 19. Just flip a couple of pages, go to John 19. John 19, starting in verse 1, says this. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. I think it was fitting that in Jesus' final hours, the reason he's in Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover, the remembrance of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, the remembrance of that lamb and its blood on the doorposts. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for Pharaoh, right? The plague of death that swept through Egypt, except for the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the door. And after dinner, Jesus goes to the garden where he is arrested, taken into custody, chained up, and knocked around by some soldiers. Pilate has Jesus flogged, or if you have an old translation, scourged. This was done either to appease the crowds, Pilate thinking, if I beat him enough, maybe they won't want me to kill him. Or on the other hand, flogging was a typical way to actually soften somebody up for an execution. Whatever the motivation, it was a horrid abuse. Whips and metal, flesh ripped from bone. People died from being flogged. They didn't even make it to the cross. They punched him. They spit on him. They hit him in the head with sticks. They take some thorns and they make a crown. And they jam it into his head. And they stick a robe on him and mock him and call him king. Pilate brings him out to the crowds telling them, Look, Jesus is innocent. Again, the thought is that maybe, maybe Pilate figured if I beat him enough, that'll appease them, and maybe he doesn't have to die. Jesus, beaten, battered, and abused, is let out for all to see. We see in John 19.5, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. <clears throat> Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
see this man. Pay attention to the man. Consider deeply the man. Behold the man. You're half right, Pilate. Because yes, he is a man. 100%. The things they did to him, the state that he was in at that moment, couldn't have been done if he wasn't a human. But like most people at that time, that's not the whole story, Pilate. He should have been there three years earlier, Pilate, when the weird guy with the camel's hair and the honey and bugs on his lips, the one out in the desert calling people to repent, when he saw this man. Because one day he looked and and he saw this same man and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, both are true. And one happens because of the other. Behold the man beaten and wrecked by sin. And because he is a man, the perfect man, the sinless man, because he is who he is, because he is arrested, because he is beaten and battered, because he goes to the cross and gets nailed, because he does suffocate and die, because he gets put in a tomb, because he rises from the dead, never to taste death again, and declaring his power and authority over all existence. Behold, the man is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the man upon the cross, our sins upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Behold the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man. The incarnation of Jesus' arrival is a reminder of his humility that he would leave heaven to come here to engage with this broken world so that we would have the opportunity to once again have a right relationship with God. And it's a reminder of his everlasting, eternal, unconditional love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For he is the Savior we needed. By being the sin offering that was required so that all sin, every sin would be paid for, punished, and dealt with through Jesus. And for those who would admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins in our place and choose for him to be your Savior and King. For those, there is new life, there is new hope, there is redemption, there is a relationship, a right relationship with God found through that faith. Isaiah spoke about this Messiah who would, through his suffering and death, bring us life. He described it in this way in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his trouble was a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could all be healed. 
all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded. For the rebels. Behold the person. Behold the man. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so many things. Um, God, as we are in this season of celebration and anticipation, when our normally noisy world gets a little bit louder with ads and voices and distractions of buy this and do that and purchase this and make yourself happy and make somebody else happy with this thing and with this experience, God, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to slow down and stop and behold you. Behold what happened that night as that baby cried in a manger and changed everything. Behold this man who walked and talked and taught and preached and proclaimed good news, provided relief, gave us glimpses of the kingdom of God, and went to the cross innocent and blameless, perfect, and died so that we might have a new life, a right relationship with you, something we couldn't make, something we couldn't create ourselves, something we couldn't do on our own. God, as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the arrival of Christ, help us to Remember and give our thanks and help us to enjoy the reality that Christ came for us. He came with a mission and purpose to die for us. That is the point of what we are celebrating. That's the point, is to get to that day on that cross. God, as we live in our own second advent, as we live in this season of waiting, waiting for Christ's return, waiting for that day where we get to experience his presence fully and completely, experience 
that day where pain and death and suffering and sin is no more. God, I pray you would help us to wait and wait actively. Wait expectantly. Realizing that we are here with a purpose, that you have saved us, yes, to save us from our sins, but saved us that we might be the lights of the world to shine brightly, to point others toward you. You have made a way for us to have a right relationship with you by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. God, help us to shine brightly and to live in light of that reality that others might see and know that same truth. God, as we wait, as we long, help us to stop and slow down and be re-reminded and re-overwhelmed by the reality that God came to be with us in this place to die for our sins that we might have a right relationship with you. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.